Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm founder and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, and I'm here with... Alison Tate, and I am a writer of fiction, non-fiction, and features. And every week, we're bringing you the latest in news and what's going on, and maybe even a little bit of gossip in the world of writing, <laughs> blogging, and publishing. So, Alison, what have you been up to this week? Well, unsurprisingly, I've been writing, writing, writing and writing. Um, I'm working on book two in my children's middle grade series and I have a huge block of freelance work on at the moment as well. So I'm having to divide my time between those two things and sometimes that's not always easy, but, you know, that's where it all, co- that's where it all comes down to being professional, I suppose. And how do you juggle that then? If you've Because writing books is very different to, you know, doing freelance writing for magazines or websites and that sort of thing. How, do you do one? one in the morning and one in the afternoon or how does it work for you? Well, I basically, I do try to divide my day a little bit. What I try to do is I focus on getting the, what I call the paid work, which is the freelance work. Um, I focus on, on doing a good portion of that um, while I can in the morning because I'm generally fresher and I can get through more stuff. And then the fiction for me is is still feels very much like a holiday in a lot of ways, like immersing yourself. Oh, it does. I, I just love it so much. And, I mean, it, it, it's it's difficult sometimes. You get to the middle of the book and you think, what am I doing? But um, I, I try to put an hour aside each day to just give myself that. And if I don't get to it during the day when my children are at school, I do it at night. And that's, you know, like it's, it's really very much a consistency. Consistency is my word of the week and I'm really focusing on that at the moment. And what about you? What have you been doing? Well, I wish I could say that I have been writing, uh, but yesterday I did something very clever. I decided, oh, I'm going to drive from Melbourne to Sydney. And for our international listeners, that's the equivalent of, well, it's about 800 kilometres. And it takes about 10 hours usually. Mm, quite uh, a drive. Yeah, long drive. But mm. exactly halfway, my car broke down. Oh, no. <laughs> so, oh, no. Oh, so, no. Yeah, oh no. And I had I had four furry animals in tow. So my car is currently somewhere near Gundagai. Uh, and um, I am carless. So I had planned for the recording of this podcast to uh, get all the uh, furry animals off to their babysitters for the day. In other words, my very kind staff who would look after them while I recorded this podcast. But instead, I have no car to even get there. And I'm at home. And so if you hear the woofs and meows of two dogs and two cats, you will know why. Oh, Fantastic. What do you do? I often think about this because you do that drive relatively often. Yes. What do you do for that? Like you're, you're there, you are in the car with your fairy babies, you're driving, <laughs> driving, driving. Do you listen to audio books? Do you, what do you do? Like do you, how do you entertain yourself on that extremely long drive? Because there's a lot of not very much to look at along the way. Oh yeah, the Hume Highway is not the most exciting place on earth. Uh, but the very first time, I've got, I've got some tips on that. But um, one thing you should not do, which I did my very first go, was um, take, the, uh, take the trip with an iPod with no music at all. And what I did was I downloaded an audio book from audio and uh, it was because uh, I looked at the amount of time that it would take to listen to this audiobook and it was about 10 hours and I thought oh. that's great that's exactly the trip I'm going to listen to this audiobook and by the end I will have read a book fantastic <laughs> but I didn't realize
realise that the narrator of this particular book had the most soporific voice <gasps> on the planet. Oh, that's not good. Not good. So I, um, I, I you know, I was ba- barely keeping my eyes open, so I had to stop listening to that book. Um, <laughs> in on other trips, I have yes, listened to music. On one trip, I listened to uh, ten hours of the same podcast, but ten episodes. Wow! Yes, yeah, so I got you would to have been know... an expert by the time you got there. Oh yes, yeah, so I got to know that person's voice very well. We've since become good friends, actually. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> And, and one other trip, I did the whole thing in silence, and it went like a blink of an eye. Really? Yes. So that is I my tip. I thought that would have been very long, but all right, there you go. So what else is happening then in the writing world? What have you found for us this week? Well, we'll put this in the show notes, but one of the headlines that really stood out for me this week um, was a story in the LA Times that one in 10 Americans think HTML is an STD. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> I haven't tested the veracity of these claims, but according to this study, yes, one in 10 Americans thinks HTML, you know, the markup language in, uh, in, in, in the world of the World Wide Web, is a sexually transmitted disease. But, um, yeah, you know, it could be it viral, could be. so yeah. to speak, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Another headline that um, jumped out at me this week from Umbrella was they were talking about how the Women's Weekly in... Um, uh, the latest issue of the magazine um, erroneously labelled an innocent man as a as as the accused as a murderer. So you know, oh dear, God only knows what happened when it came to captioning. But um, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been involved in a situation where somebody has been misnamed or or, or anything like that? Uh, not so much misnamed, but I do remember one particularly momentous occasion when I was working at Clio and I had done an interview with Martin and Malloy, who were like the radio duo of the time. Very, very funny, very sarcastic. It was one of those interviews that was, um, was fairly difficult because when you're talking to people like that, they tend to run away with the interview as well. You know, like it's very, very hard to keep them on track when they're bouncing off each other. And anyway, so I had done this interview and then the story had gone to press and had come out. And the first I had really thought about it or heard about it was when they were talking about it on the radio for their 3 million listeners or whatever they had at the time. And we had cleverly spelt Malloy's name wrong in oh. about 78 point type. It was in the headline. Oh. And the thing I, I think that you realize when you're working in magazines like that and you're looking at words constantly is that the bigger the type, the easier it is to miss a mistake mm. because you're not most of the time people don't even like we're so focused on making sure that everything's right in the text that the words it, at the top can often just be completely overlooked. It had been typed in by somebody, you know, like I, I went back because, of course, I was in big trouble <laughs> and um, I went back and I had put it correctly yes, into the text. Of course I had <laughs> because I kept saying to them, it's right in the text, it's only in the headline that it's wrong. Oh. And, um, and it just goes to show you that, like, you can have, like, ten pairs of eyes look at a piece and you can still get it wrong. So in a caption, which is in eight-point type... Yes. I can, I can see how it happens. So, you know, I have sympathy, but it's a very unfortunate error. That is, uh, yes, it's, um, it's a far bigger sin to label an innocent man of murder. Um, and, of course, that is Tony Martin and Mick Malloy, and they would have gone to town. They, they, they really did. 
it was oh. like it was one of those days where I just really wish I'd stayed in bed. But yeah, you know, I, look, it happens, and and um, I wrote about it in a blog post once because I I think you know as I said, it's one of those things where you got to check every single detail and look, really look at it. Like, don't just see what you think you're seeing. Well, I had you, I had a really sorry to cut you off there. Yeah, cut, cut me off. <laughs> Go for it. I, um, look, I'm reliving the shame. Cut uh, me. I had a really bizarre one um, because clearly I know what my name is. Valerie yes. Koo. And um, I would only put my name as a byline in any story that I wrote. And I once interviewed Mark Scaife, the um, champion racing car driver. Oh, yes. And I did a profile on Mark Scaife and I, you know, submitted it to the magazine, which shall remain nameless. And of course, I put my byline on it, my byline on it Valerie Koo. And they published the story. They loved it. And they published this profile on Mark Scaife. And and they bylined it and said by Valerie Scaife. Oh, you married him. Right. <laughs> it's like magic. <laughs> so I was mortified thinking that Mark Scaife was going to read this and think, oh my God, she's a stalker. She wants to marry Celebrity groupie. Fantastic. Oh, just what you want. Yes, um, just what I want. So what else is going on? Anything, anything else to report? Well, last week we spoke about the Amtrak uh, residency for writers where, and you know, this is particularly of interest, I think, to our US listeners um, because applications close on the 31st of March and they are for trips for two to five days. And this is where you can apply to become a writer in residence with Amtrak and you get a long distance train trip for for free. Well, you know, you get sponsored for this train trip. Um, Yeah, lovely, which could be absolutely gorgeous in some of the areas in America. However, if you unfortunately live in Alaska or Hawaii, you can't um, apply because obviously the trains don't go over the ocean. Don't go there. (laughs) Um, I think there's something else that's been, that's worth noting about those residencies as well, because I've mm. been sort of doing a bit of further investigation and there's been some um, other blog posts written about it. Um, The fine print of that contract says that they will reserve all rights to writer's work. So whatever you write on the train belongs to Amtrak, but also including the samples that writers submit with applications. So I think the the thing that people need to think about with this is just how important it is to read the details of whatever it is that you're applying for. I mean, it may be that that's a fantastic opportunity for someone. Amtrak, they haven't actually said what they're going to do with them. They may decide to put them in an anthology or, you know, they're, they're, you know, expose a writer's work. But I think it is definitely a lesson to ensure that whatever it is that you're submitting anywhere, that you know exactly what's going to happen or what the, what the rights situation is with that particular um, opportunity. Sure. And I think, I mean, I'm just going through the terms and conditions now, but I, I'm not sure that uh, what you write on the train belongs to Amtrak, but certainly what you put in your application they are wanting to them. The, the rights to. Okay, uh, so there's some maybe there's some confusion around that and that might be worth clarifying as well. Yeah, and I think if someone, you know, if some people get up on their high horse about these sorts of things and it, I think it is really important that people do read the fine print, but also I kind of think this is a great opportunity for a writer who can, because after all, they are writers. <laughs> it's, yes. It shouldn't be that hard for them to write something, but if they can write in that application, knowing full well that Amtrak may want the right to it, but 
craft their application and their writing sample to something that high, that promotes them as a writer, but also promotes Amtrak and actually makes Amtrak want to use it and want to spread the word about them and want to shout out their writing sample to the world. If if you can write it in such a way that that there's a win win for both kind of thing. Yeah, that's well, and that, and that would be the key to it, as you say. Like I I, I think that there's always going to be as you say, naysayers around these kinds of things. But I think it's up to every writer just to weigh up what's being offered yeah. and work out, well, you know, is it going to work for them? Read the fine print, everyone. Read the fine, Read print. The fine print, yes. <laughs> exactly. So what have you been reading and looking at um, this week, Alison? Well, I've actually been reading. I downloaded to my Kindle app because I'm very <laughs> modern like that. Um, I have been reading a book by an American author called Kristen Lamb, and it's called Rise of the Machines, Human Authors in a Digital World. Sounds Which like is, a good name for a movie. Well, yeah. I mean, it's all a bit, you know, dramatic, shall we say, a little bit melodramatic, one might say. But it's actually, um, it's actually a very she's 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 very very clever because her her main focus is on building relationships. She's very much against this whole business, and I think that everybody knows of these sorts of authors who will simply tweet links constantly about their books mm. or will drop links all over mm. Facebook on, you know, even on unrelated posts about their books. And all it does is annoy people. <laughs> I, you know, if you're doing it, please stop because it is so annoying. Yep. Um, and she she goes out of her way to talk about that, to show that just because we're dealing with, you know, just because we're, we're promoting ourselves online or we're, we're creating uh, networks online doesn't mean that we have to forget that there's people involved mm. and that the that building the relationship is the most important thing. So I have found the book quite interesting. She's she's a very clever um blogger. She she's she knows about she knows the stuff about blogging and things like that. And I think if authors are at the start of their platform building or you know promotional sort of work, marketing work, it's a it's worth a read because she she really is um you know, takes a very sensible approach. It has to be about people. You're mm. looking for readers. You're not just looking for people to retweet your links. Mm. Um, so, I, yeah, definitely worth a read as far as I'm concerned. Have so, you read anything like that lately? Well, well no, I was just going to ask you on that one. Um, if Because you're pretty savvy about the online world and about using the online world as a platform. What was your key takeaway? What, what did you learn from it apart from, you know, obviously this raised an issue, generated discussion. What did you learn from the book? I think what I probably learned was a reiteration for me because I think sometimes, you know, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing something or what you've been doing. I think that it's very, very easy sometimes for authors to get caught up in numbers. It's, you know, numbers. How many people are liking my Facebook page and how many people am I, you know, talking to on Twitter? And and I think sometimes that that we forget that the focus is about relationships and being useful and talking to people and and I and I think about the way that I operate with people like if if I like what someone is doing then you know what I'm going to be there for them I'm going to mm. I'm going to put their books up on my Facebook page I'm going to just talk about them I'm going to support them however I can and I think that that's the reiteration of that mm. is probably was my key takeaway from it it was just that importance of remembering that, you know, numbers can sometimes be a little bit misleading. Mm. I think that's probably what I took from it. 
Well, the book I've started reading, but I have to say I'm not that far into it yet, so I can't really comment yet. But I started reading it because it um, it intrigued me. It's by an Australian author called uh, called Dr. Jason Fox, mm-hmm. um, and it's called The Game Changer. And it's kind of really about motivation and strategy and gamification and, and human behavior and how to tap into that human behavior to achieve a result or, or, or how to change behavior or how to get people to do stuff based on what motivates them, but often in a gaming context. And I don't mean gaming as in you sit there with your Xbox or your PlayStation, but um, gaming just in terms of, you know, when you want to get um, a, a certain status perhaps on TripAdvisor because you've done X number of reviews or you are a certain status as a Wikipedia author because you've done X number of, you know, um, uh, your editorial submissions on Wikipedia, that sort of thing. So right. it, it's it's um, it's kind of like, you know, when you get your loyalty coffee card even, at um, when you get your coffee every morning, it's, it's tapping into what is it about us that wants us to get all of those stamps on the coffee card. Oh, uh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to, you know, when I get more stuck into it to see um, what uh, – what the implications are for you know society as a whole kind of thing because it's really prolifer- pr- proliferating I'm finding all, all aspects of of um of what we do you know when you want to get to the next level in, in on your app or if you want to unlock yeah. this and yeah. you know even that lift app um it's called lift where it's uh you you want to do say 10 uh sit-ups every day or 100 sit-ups every day and you have to check in and say that you've done it but you can't it kind of you kind of really want to check in every day and make sure you've done your 100 sit-ups because you don't want to break the chain, that right. the, pre- the pretty green line or whatever that, that is created. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds very interesting. I look forward to hearing a bit more about it once you – you can give us your key takeaway once you're finished. Exactly. Fantastic. But the big news this week is, of course, that the Best Australian Blogs Competition for 2014 is well and truly launched and people have until the 3rd of April – to get their entries in and um, potentially win the mantle of Best Australian Blog. And you are one of the judges this year. I am one of the judges and I'm very excited about that. I'm, you know, busily trying on different hats because <laughs> i am got to choose the correct judging hat for my, mo- my moment. But I know I'm very excited about it and I saw that there's been um, 500 entries already. Yeah which is just amazing. And it's been less than a week. Less than a week. And I just think, like, I just think it's brilliant that, you know, so many, and, um, and I love the fact that it's a, it's a blog competition all about writing. It's yep. about, you know, what, what's, what's great writing. Because there is some great writing out there on the internet and it's like, well, here's our opportunity to find it and promote it and discover it and all that sort of stuff. So, no, I'm very excited and it's, um, it's great to see how the blogging community has just embraced the whole thing. Yeah, and the other exciting part is that we have um, a new sponsor on board this year, and that is Trafalgar. And so the winner, the overall winner of the Best Australian Blogs competition will win an 
international trip, and I know what the destination is, but I uh, we, we're still ironing out. Uh, we're still organising a few things before we can do the big reveal. And but it's an amazing destination, and it's going to be for around seven nights. It's going to include airfare, you know, on ground transfers, most meals, insider activities, and it's uh, going to be an amazing trip organised by Trafalgar for the main winner. Fantastic! It's pretty exciting, I have to say. The winner will also get $1,000 cash from Random Random House and a mentoring session with one of the editors. And I think that's really important to mention too because um, two of last year's uh, winners, the overall winner and a category winner, are having their books published by Random House this year. So That's brilliant. And will yeah. they, will those, when will those be coming out? Do you know those books? The, uh, the winner's book um, from the blog Cook Republic, um, Snay Roy, her book will be out in April, and Clint Gregan from Reservoir Dad, his book is going to be out in August, I believe. So pretty exciting. Very exciting. Well, we'll be we can probably talk a little bit more about that when those come around. Yes. So who is our writer in residence for our podcast this week? Our writer in residence this week is Fleur McDonald, and she's one of Australia's leading female rural literature authors, rural fiction, um, and she's also one of Australia's most popular authors. It's it's very exciting to have her. Um, I just noticed on her Facebook page this week that her new book, Crimson Dawn, which we're going to talk a little bit about in the interview, has gone into reprint weeks before it's even been launched, so based on pre-orders, which is pretty impressive. So anyway, um, without further ado, here's Fleur. Today we welcome Fleur McDonald to the show. Fleur is one of Australia's leading authors of rural fiction and a regular on favourite author lists. Her first novel, Red Dust, was the highest selling debut in 2009 and her fifth novel, Crimson Dawn, will be published in March this year, which is a lot of books in a short time. So it's surprising to hear that Fleur snatches writing moments in between running an 8,000 acre farm with her husband in southeast Western Australia and raising children. She is one busy lady. So we're thrilled she found some time to talk to us today. <laughs> so hi Fleur and welcome to the show. Hi Alison, how are you going? I'm very well, thank you. So I guess my first question is, um, did you set out to write rural fiction when you began writing? Um, well, I don't. I think when I started writing, it probably never had a term like that. It wasn't a genre. There was one girl writing it, and that was Rachel Treasure. And I read her first book, Jillaroo, and um, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I think I could write something like that, but never believed that I would actually do it. Um, you know, I lived the same sort of life that um, you know she was living and. Um, on farms and and I knew that the farming industry sort of pretty much inside out but it wasn't really classed as a rural lit genre when I first started because I was the second one after Rachel to come along um and then there was a couple um Fiona Palmer came after me and then Nicole Alexander came after that and then of course there was a great big influx so um I didn't I set out to write a rural book. I didn't realise it was going to be in the rural genre at the time. <laughs> okay, so had you written before that or was this like I'm just going to – I really like this – type of work I'm going to have a go at it well you know that's sort of that's how it was yes but I sort of feel um that that does a lot of discredit to other authors that you know work really hard at their craft and and have done lots of um courses about writing 
I haven't. I've learnt on the go. Um, I think one of the things that I'm very lucky with is that I grew up around stories. My nana used to um, tell me stories all the time um, and they weren't written. They were they were verbal stories. So I sort of had that storyteller um Oh, section come across my life. It was all, and my dad is an incredible storyteller as well. He never writes anything down. He just tells amazing stories. So I was probably lucky I had an inbuilt storyteller in me um, mm-hmm. to get across the fact that I hadn't had, I don't have any formal writing qualifications. So yes, um, I sat down and I, oh, obviously I love reading, always have always read. So I sort of knew how a, a book was paced. Um, so I just did actually just sit down and write Red Dust and, um, yeah, that was my first crack at it all. <laughs> so, so how, okay. so how long did it take you to write Red Dust? How long did it take you to complete it? Well, um, the only reason I completed it was because I got a contract. Red Dust was sold on the first three chapters. Um, they didn't ask for the whole complete manuscript, thankfully, because it wasn't there. Um, so I went through, yeah, sorry. I, it's, look, my story is very different and I've been very blessed, but I went through the Friday pitch. Um, Louise Thurtell actually positively rejected me for the first time and said it wasn't what she was looking for at the time. And I had no idea of the protocol when it came to writing and my parents had always raised me to believe that I could do anything I wanted to just as long as I put in the hard work. So I was lucky enough to be naive enough to believe that I could do it. Um, anyway, so I popped in this first couple of chapters, completely ignoring all the submission guidelines, said to Louise, look, you've looked at this before, just have another look at it, would you mind, please? And within, I don't know, two weeks, I had a contract on those first three chapters. Um, and then I thought, oh crap, I suppose I better finish it. (laughs) (laughs) And how long did it take you to finish it? Like, did you, do you think that having the contract made finishing it harder or easier? It's probably the only reason it got finished. And I'm the same with all of all of my books. I tend to, I don't leave it till the last minute, but I tend to think, oh, I've got all this time. And then suddenly I've got, you know, two months to go. And I go, oh, well, yes, I do have another 60,000 words to write. I should get on with that. Um, right. So that's what I do. I'm, I think okay. I write better under pressure. So, yeah, Red Dust... Um, Oh, I suppose it probably took me six months in the end and we had a really rigorous edit and that was over 12 months. So I was actually signed up in 2007 for and it didn't come out until 2009. Did that rigorous edit come as a shock for you? I didn't know what to do. I had no idea in the world what to do. Um, Wendy Orr told me at one point, you know, Wendy who wrote Nims Island? uh, Yes. She said to me at one stage, when you get the edits back, you look at it and you go, number one, that editor is so wrong, they don't get my book, that's just, you know, they're just wrong. And then number two is like, oh, crap, the editor's right, how the hell am I going to fix this? I can't fix it, I can't write, I'm hopeless. And then number three is like light bulb moment, oh, and I had to fix it. Well, I usually sit at that number two section forever. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, the edit was really, um, really confronting and I learned a lot. Um, And editing now is actually one of my favourite parts. Um, I find putting the story down sometimes harder. All right. Okay. So do you now, um, I, get, I mean, has your, has your process changed a little bit? Like do you, 
do you now do more editing as you go or do you still write the whole thing or how do you how do you work with that now i mean are you are you doing a draft and then editing it yourself before it goes off yeah um i actually do um, because I write in snatches, um, I, you know, I might be lucky enough to have a whole day where I can write and then not pick up or start and pick up a pen and start typing again for another three weeks. So often oh, okay. I use that chapter that I've done before, I'll edit that to get me back into it. Now that's often very time-consuming, but it's, it's sometimes it's the actually, actually the only way I can get back into the book. And I'm the biggest procrastinator, as I think most writers are. So if I don't have to write, that's perfect. Let's see if we can find something else to do. <laughs> Fair enough. Clean, clean out the fridge. Yep. So do you think your writing has changed a lot from your first book to your fifth or, or just your process has changed or, you know, do you do anything differently now? You know, I think the freedom of writing the first book and not having – anybody having expectations of you um tends is the best time to write a book I, I tend to be I tend to care a lot what people think about my writing and um so therefore I put a lot of pressure on myself and I, I tend to my publisher tells me off all the time for doing that but it's something that I can't um get away from I've got to be improving or or, or I think I need to improve every book um I had I had actually had a new editor uh work on Crimson Dawn with me this time and she thinks that I've improved uh, massively since my first book I've never actually gone back and looked at Red Dust again because I was so sick of that book by the time Mm. we finished with it that I never wanted to read it again um and I think if I did go back, I would probably want to take to it with a red pen because I have learned so very, very much over the over you know the whole five books. Yeah. So, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions about rural fiction? Because I know that you know people have set ideas about what rural literature is. Mm. What do you What do you think that you know what What do you think it is, and what do you think are the misconceptions that people have about it? Um, I'm not sure that rural lit authors are taken seriously and um, in within the publishing industry itself. Um, there are definitely people that do. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's, I think there's probably sub-genres within the genre. So, you know, you've got your rural lit, then you've got your offshoots like Nicole Alexander who does historical fiction and, and probably people like Rachel Treasure and myself and... Um, Oh, Fiona Palmer to an extent that highlight the problems within the rural industry. We're people that have worked on farms. We understand farming. We can talk about it with, you know, quite a lot of authority. And then you've got your other people um, like the Rachel Johnses um, who do an absolutely fantastic job of telling a story but their main um, content is romance. And they do. they That sells as well, you know. Yeah. They do a good job of it. Um, yeah. So there's, I think there's probably those three categories. Um, to a point, I think you need to be different. Um, readers want to know what they're getting, absolutely, but you want to be able to differentiate yourself just a little from everybody else so they feel like they're picking up a different book when they pick up your book. That makes sense. Well, that brings me to my next question about the fact that that rural literature, rural fiction market has certainly grown exponentially over the past well you know five years I guess since your first book came out Mm. Uh, do you have 
any tips for would-be authors in your area? Like, I mean, it's a it's a it's a big genre, but is it saturated? How do you break into it if if that's what you want to write? Well, it's interesting because I'm not sure. I've I've thought it was saturated, um, and I, saw, I kept seeing all these other people coming in, thinking, "Oh, I wonder how this is going to affect our sales the whole way through." I had a meeting with my publishers in August last year, and they said to me that they're not seeing any signs of it being saturated yet because they're not having booksellers come in and say to them, "Look, um, we don't want that because we've got enough of that particular um, genre on the shelf." Okay, which is. Interesting. Now, whether or not that means that they, there's room for more people to come in, I don't know. But what is there at the moment is obviously still selling. Everybody's still buying it. Um, it doesn't seem to have um, reached saturation point yet. I think um, the longer we go and the less stories there are to tell, um, and the less difference in the plots through all the authors, that's when we're going to get into trouble, which is another reason why, you know, I would say you need to be different. You need to be original and you need to have an original voice. That's what's going to get you picked up. Okay. As in, as in any genre, as in any type of publishing, like that original voice, yeah. original thought is 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 exactly what people, uh, what publishers across all areas are looking for. Yeah, that's right. So I'm not telling you anything new. Um, <laughs> no, but I think it's something that people forget. I think so. Um, yeah. And, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a different background, so like my background's farming, um, but if you've got a background, say, in um, – Oh, something really different. So, so like Helene Young being a pilot, um, yeah. you know, though that's they need a selling point for the author as well as um, a great story from that that author. So it's not just the book that needs to be marketable. The person that's themselves need to be that's written the book needs to be marketable as well. Okay. So, do you ever have a hankering to write something? Different? I'd love to write crime. Um, that's oh. that's where my passion lies. Like that's what I read. Um, I'm a huge Patricia Cornwall fan. Like from her early stuff, um, Kathy Reichs, Michael Connolly, you know, John Grisham, detective, murder mystery, lawyer mystery solving. Love that genre. All up. So will we be seeing something like that from you in the future? Well, I keep trying to put little bits of it into my books. I had a lot yep. more crime in Silver Clouds than what actually ended up in the published version. Right. Uh, a lot of the crime got taken out. Um, so I I know crime is so desperately difficult to get into as well. So possibly not. I'll probably just keep doing it through my my rural lit books at this point. And that's my, that's my difference from the rest yeah. of the girls. Um, so I'll probably keep doing it that way. That doesn't mean I'm not secretly writing something. <laughs> I <don't, laughs> oh, I see. I don't think we're going to put, do a JK Rowling's and put it out under a pen name. You or never know. Like that, that. That's exciting. <laughs> so what do you love most about Crimson Dawn, which is your, your new book? Oh, um, well, I really like Laura. She's um, she's the main character, and um, she she runs a, a Jillaroo school. So she's she runs a school that empowers women to learn how to make good decisions um, in a really safe environment to do with farming. So, yeah, sometimes I know from when I was younger, I hate going to field days and having blokes out around me all the time and asking. And me wanting to ask a question but too scared to ask it in case you got howled down by all the blokes. 
So Laura fixes that problem. She runs this. Um, she runs this Jillaroo school, but I also um, travel back to the late thirties, early forties, back into the wool sheds, um, and how the past uh, will or can affect Laura's present day. So I love the history side of things. You know, when it comes to Australian history, I think there's a lot of tales to be told in that. And and I was lucky enough to have a couple of old shearers um, that I could talk to and get how it used to be, you know, authentic, like I've said before, that word authentic. Um, and so I chatted to them a lot. And, I, you know, I really loved writing the, the history part of um, Crimson Dawn. Well, it sounds like you've enjoyed the whole process. Um, yeah, Crimson Dawn was really difficult to write because... Um, I think I only had about 30,000 words written um, up until about June and I, last year and I stopped writing because I was looking after my mother-in-law and, and she was, had got quite a lot sicker and I hadn't finished when she, died, when she died in August and I suddenly had, you know, 60 or 70,000 words to write in a very, very short space of time. So I did find it very difficult but... I think we've come out with something at the end. I think we've really come out with something special. Um, I think it's different to the books I've written already. Um, it's probably a little bit more out there to what I've written as well. So we'll see how it's taken. <laughs> Sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. All right, so we'll finish up with your top three tips for writers. Well, what would they be? I, um, I don't really have a lot of top tips. All I would say is you need to sit and write. You need to sit your bum down and stay there. Don't write like me in snatches and lose your train of thought and your thread. Um, I think you need to believe in yourself and it's very difficult um, to do that. I think we're programmed as authors to self-doubt. So that's something um, you probably need to try and fix and I still haven't done it so I don't expect anybody else (laughs) 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 to give it a crack. Um, so I think they're probably my, you know, my top ones is, is just try and write and try and write every day um, because when you don't, you tend to lose that beautiful flow of words that you can have. Um, not that you lose your craft. It's, it's like anything, like practising an instrument, you've sort of got to keep at it because if you don't, you get rusty. Um, yeah, that and have some self-belief. Fantastic. Well, Fleur, thank you so much for talking to us today. Good luck with Crimson Dawn. We'll put all the links to your websites and your Facebook and all those things will be all on the pages that go with this podcast. And um, we hope that, you know, this is a great year for writing for you. Oh, thank you very much, Alison. Thanks for having me as well. It's been great. Well, that was a great interview, Al. Yeah, she's terrific. And the exciting thing too is that she's going to be doing a Facebook chat with my Pink Fibro book club at 8 o'clock on March the 25th. And I'll put a link through to that in the show notes. But she's going to be there for an hour answering questions from readers and authors. So if you want to have some idea of exactly what makes a really popular author tick should come along. Fantastic. Have you read a lot of farm lit? I mean, you know, these days there's so many genres, right, even within, within you know, certain types of fiction. There's chook lit, there's chick lit, there's farm lit. I know, lit, I know. Farm sick lit. lit. <laughs> sick lit. Um, I have read a bit of it because I, um, you know, I just think it's always a good idea to know exactly what's going on. And it is a very Australian 
type of um, book, which is, I think, why it's so incredibly popular. And it is one of the most uh, popular um, the most popular genres out there at the moment. I, I read, um, I remember a few years ago, a, an author by the name of Rachel Treasure, and I think mm. Fleur talked about her, and she she has inspired, she pretty much inspired the whole genre. And, you know, like Fleur is, is now uh, one of the biggest authors in that area as well. But there's, there's a lot of great Australian women writing in that area, and I think it's definitely worth having a look at. What do you think is the next lit <laughs> that's going to emerge? Mm, if I knew that, I'd be worth a million bucks, wouldn't I? <laughs> like, really? What kind of question? I mean, I don't know. I think that uh, there's a there's um, I noticed in publishing lately there's been a sort of a little bit of a trend towards coastal sort of you know sea lit sea lit yeah maybe coastal romance you know i don't know i mean it's again as i said if i knew what was going to be massive i would be writing it right now (laughs) (laughs) so what have we asked our listeners this week well we had a very hilarious moment because um we talked to well basically we would it was around the oscars um which of course happened just recently and so i asked the australian writers center community about their favorite line from a movie ever Mm. which is a big ask admittedly like i would struggle to come up with my own but of course once they all started flooding in you remember you know how how many great lines there are out there i think the most popular one that somebody put up was your terrible muriel which of course (laughs) is a classic from australian films um, there's the, there was a lot of Princess Bride. Do you know the movie The oh, Princess Bride? Oh, yeah. You either get it or you don't. Oh, mm. you keep saying that word. I do not think it means what you think it means <laughs> and that sort of stuff. And, you know, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Um, as, you may, as you may say, I'm, <laughs> I'm clearly a big, one of those. I ones. am a massive fan of that movie. I just love it. Um, but there was, you know, nobody puts baby in a corner. Oh, Toto, yes. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And even a little bit of Notting Hill. I'm just a girl oh. standing in front of a boy asking him to love me. That's a favorite line. That's one of the soppiest lines ever, ever uttered. Ever. But no, it was one of the fa- it was one of the favourites. Like it was, and that's the thing. I think I think what that says, if you ever look through the actual that particular um, comment box on on our Facebook page, different. This is why there are so many different movies and so many different writers and so many different ideas because different things speak to different people. And what you know, a, mo- a line and a movie that I love is something that you're going to hate, and it's the same reason why there's so many songs out there. You know, different people, and that's what I think is so brilliant about writing. You know, like it's 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 almost like there's some there's someone for everyone, isn't there? What's something yours? for everyone. Well, again, I I'm not good at that sort of stuff. I never. I'm not good at favourites because I have so many, um, but I, I do love I, – I could quote The Princess Bride at you. And I also just love classics. Like if I say Bueller, Bueller, <laughs> that's all I need to say. And the whole movie comes sweeping back, you know. So oh, what about God. you? Well, I'm a bit of a diehard fan. So, you know, yippee mother. You oh, know. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> various Rocky movies because I do love Rocky and that's why I named my cat Rocky. Um, (laughs) And, and also that's, you know, related to that, I named my dog Rambo. Um, So it's probably not hard to figure out where, which movies I would quote from. Oh, that's hilarious. We should be quoting, you know, like 
obscure indie, you know, whatever, but we're not. We're all talking about the big blockbusters and the most commercial. Make ourselves sound really arty and intelligent, yes. I know, know, you know, whatever. (laughs) Let's leave that one behind, shall we? All right, so we're almost at the end of our episode. What are you up to this week? Well, I I will be continuing to write because I've got to... um, I've got some deadlines that I need to meet, so that's what I'll be doing. I'll be obviously going through my hat collection, choosing <laughs> a hat for my for the best Australian blogs. And I think, you know, if people have any suggestions for what I should wear to that, if there's any pictures out there that they feel that I might like to consider for my judging hat, they should really feel free to send them through to us. <laughs> People are going to now think that there's a hat component of the business travel blog. <laughs> well, you know, I just feel like a person has to be in the right frame of mind for the judging moment. So, I, you know, and a hat's important. But anyway, um, what about you? What will you be doing? I am heading to Bris Vegas tomorrow. Uh, ah. Non-Australians will understand. Will now understand that that's actually Brisbane. That's what we affectionately call Brisbane. Uh, and I'm running a workshop this week for about 55 people on how to raise your profile. So that should be fun. It's something that I think a lot of writers need to um, pay a bit of attention to if they want to sell do. more books. Let's run but, a course um, on that, shall we? Yeah, so it's going to be fun. So um, good to head to some warm weather and then back again on the weekend. But until next time on our podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, that's all from me, Valerie Koo, and also my co-host, Alison Tate. Thanks for listening, everyone. 